Hello, and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. to today's podcast episode, the one about bilingual and multicultural assessment with the fabulous Dr. Faye Murray. I am Caitlin Lopez, your host, a pediatric SLP based in Southern California. If you have any questions during today's episode, please feel free to pop them into the chat. And as a reminder, at the conclusion of today's course, please log into your course portal on the speechtherapypd.com website and complete all modules, especially the one entitled quiz to get your live CE credit for today. All right, before we begin, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures to report. I am Caitlin Lopez, the host of the podcast, This Speech Life. I receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode, and I have no relevant non-financial relationships to report. Dr. Faye Murray is an associate clinical professor in the Communication Sciences and Disorders Department at Northern Arizona University. She receives compensation for this podcast episode from speechtherapypd.com. There are no relevant non-financial relationships to exist. All right. I am so excited to introduce to all of you, if you have not taken any of her courses before, Dr. Faye Murray. She's an associate clinical professor in the Communication Sciences and Disorders Department at Northern Arizona University, where she teaches graduate courses and supervises clinical practicums. She facilitates the clinic bilingual evaluation team, supervises bilingual treatment sessions, and provides training for parents in school districts at the state and national level. Prior to joining the NAU faculty, Dr. Murray worked as a bilingual speech-language pathologist for over 25 years in various settings, most notably in early intervention and in public schools near the Navajo Nation, and in communities with high Latin representation. Her clinical and research interests emphasize culturally and linguistically appropriate practices, impact of cultural values on treatment, cultural reciprocity in the clinical setting, and effective use of interpreters and client family empowerment. I always love spending time with Dr. Faye Murray, and she makes something that seems a little scary to those of us who are monolingual, bilingual, multicultural assessment. She makes it seem completely doable for those of us who are not blessed to be bilingual SLPs. And so I'm just really grateful that we get to spend this next hour together. So Dr. Faye, let's just jump right in. What are three things that we need to know about bilingual multicultural assessment? Well, hi. (laughs) That was a long intro. That just means I'm really old. You know, one of the things that we have to understand is that these are many case studies, and they're really hard for everyone. You know, no one gets an easy out. You know, I only know two languages and some dialects, and I can, you know, here and there I know some words, you know, to order drinks or food, but I really am only bilingual because I speak Spanish and English. So, you know, when I'm working with other children who speak, who don't share the languages and dialects that I speak, 
I might as well be a monolingual, right? So these are all mini case studies. They take time to prepare and to actually do and then to analyze the data. And if you're working with an interpreter, that's even more time. So if you're going to do these evaluations, the big is that you have to give it the time that it requires. Your administrators have to understand that this is something that if it wants, if you want to do it right, it just it's going to take time. The other thing is that the evaluation, you know, best practices should be completed by a bilingual SLP who shares the languages and dialects the child speaks. And it has to be pretty proficient in those languages, uh, near native proficiency. That is the gold standard. There aren't many people around who can do that. And so the next best thing is using an interpreter. And so that, and an interpreter that's qualified, not necessarily the lunch lady. It has to be someone who is actually qualified and is not just fluent, but can also has the literacy levels to be able to help you with an evaluation. And then the third thing that one that I love the most is that, you know, you can use qualitative evaluations to actually declare eligibility. And there's a lot of talk out there, but I have to use standard scores. You know, it's required by law. It is not required by law. It tends to be more of a requirement that some school districts put upon their providers but it's something that is not required by the IDEA law. And there aren't many states that require that as well. So I want to make sure that you know that qualitative evaluations are more accurate and give you better results than a standardized assessment that does not have the norm of population that we're, that we're testing. Wow, that's a lot of info right there for three, but those are the main ones that I've chosen for today. Awesome. Thank you. As we kind of go and start to dissect these big three things, you know, the first thing that you talked about is more time. I think that, yes, it's important for administrators to know that it's going to take more time, but I think it's also really pertinent for me to know it's going to take more time so I don't leave that triennial until the last minute or that assessment until, you know, it's due back for insurance, you know, whether you're working in a private practice or in a school setting. So as we talk about how it takes more time, I'm sure that's because of your third point, those qualitative measures. Yeah. You know, I worked as an SLP in the schools. I know all about IEPs, METs, you know, timelines. I know it all. I lived it all. And, you know, it's tough. And just the other day, I got an email from somebody who asked our team, we, our bilingual team will go and, and do some bilingual evaluations for people in our area. And they said, we have a meeting, you know, in a couple of days and we'd like you to do the evaluation for us. And I'm like, I'm sorry, <laughs> it's not going to happen. And they're just so, aren't you, you know, doesn't it just take you an hour? It's like, you know, it might take me an hour or an hour and a half because usually when you're working with a child, no matter the age, you're not going to have them sit there for three, four hours, you know, doing what you need to do. You really have a very finite time. So when I'm talking about the time that it takes, it's not just giving the assessments, it's the prep ahead of time, which is so important. The stuff that you have to do before and then the analysis afterwards. And then, of course, the writing of this report where you're trying to, when you're taking qualitative data, you have to explain. You can't just put a number and call it good. Oh, it's, it's, it's you know, half, you know, one and a half standard deviations, two standard deviations below the mean. They qualify. It doesn't work like that with these types of evaluations. So it's really the entire thing, not just giving the assessment portion. Of course, when you're working with an interpreter, everything kind of happens twice. You say it, and then they say it, and that can take a little time. And so you have to really figure out your timeline ahead of time. So as soon as you know this is coming in, this is a training for the people that work with you in the schools, you know, 
They've got a kid coming. You don't wait until, oh yeah, we should probably do a bilingual evaluation. There needs to be a lot more thought into it. In the schools that I've worked with, I usually work together with a child study team, or I don't know, some people's student study teams, they call it different things. They're the ones that try RTI or they, they try different kinds of things before the child is referred. And usually I have a list of things that I want them to do for me that would be good whether I'm doing an evaluation or not. And one of them is a pretty in-depth ethnographic interview. And you know, we have lots of questionnaires that are out there that are free, such as the Alberta questionnaires out there that can kind of help you to guide your questions. And there are many others that have been out there that are free. But pretty much you just kind of want to know from the parents. You want to know what are all the languages that are spoken in the home, you know, and what was the first language that the child spoke and how old was he during that time. And it has to be kind of in depth. And, and you also want to know like the parents' educational level and, you know, what are the issues at home with the communication. And so there are quite a few things that we need to find out from the parents. And I always gather an input-output survey. And just to figure out the percentages of the times that the child is hearing the different languages and how much of that he's speaking. Because some kids hear another language all day long, but when they respond, it's in English. Or, you know, maybe they hear 50-50. And we need to figure that out because that piece will determine if we're going to do the evaluation in English or in English in another language or just in another language. So that's like an early thing. And you'll need time to prepare and get your interpreter or get that bilingual SLP. So, you know, can't do that, like find out today and then by tomorrow I'm going to do the evaluation. Because if a child is speaking, so if he's speaking in understanding and listening to English more than 80% of the time, and some of the newer research is saying 70% of the time, then I can actually do most of my evaluation in English. Okay. Okay. I can't score anything because he's mostly speaking and hearing English. So I've got to figure out that percentage. Even though there might be an influence at home, I can do the evaluation in English and I can use qualitative data to qualify. But if the child is 50-50, 60-40, you know, he's speaking both languages, then I need to assess both languages. If the child is speaking another language 80% of the time or more, then I want to do that evaluation in that other language. Then the English just becomes... This is, you know, he's not as proficient in English. And so we want to find out if they have a disorder, okay, in their heritage language. So coming up with that input-output survey, um, there are a couple that are out there. There are some that are, that are free. Dr. Gorman did a wonderful workshop for ASHA that is, is a 30-minute workshop, and it was free. And I was able to, she shared with us her input-output survey, and I'm happy to share it with all of you if you'd like, because I adapted it from hers. There's also one that's commercially done by Elizabeth Pena and her group from the Bilingual English Output Survey, the BESA. And I use that particular input-output survey. It's called the BIOS, Bilingual Input-Output Survey. And it says on there Spanish and English, but I use it for English and Korean, English and Vietnamese, English and Navajo, because it's not about the language. It's about you want to find out the percentages. So that one's something you can buy. I think it's like 20. I'm not getting paid. I wish I could get some royalties from, from, Dr., from Dr. Pena, but it comes up with 25. And you just go through this questionnaire where you're saying, okay, when you wake up in the morning, what language does your child hear first? And you go through every hour or half hour and they go to school and you try to figure out what languages they're hearing, the input throughout the day until they go to sleep. And sometimes the answer is both. You know, they're watching TV, they're on their tablet and mom's talking to them. So sometimes it's both. And then the other part of the question is, well, what language when he does speak, 
what is he saying? And sometimes it's one, sometimes it's both, sometimes it's three. You ask that about Monday through Friday, and then Saturday and Sunday, there's another one, the same thing, because sometimes on the weekends, they might go to church, which is different, or might get together with family, or there's babysitting involved. And so then you have, you figure out the percentages, and you can come up with, you know, the magic number of the total input-output, and that's where you get that 70, 80% English, or 60% Spanish, and 40% English. That's where you get that magic number that will determine what languages you're going to do your assessment in. So that is something you need early on, like when the 60 days start, <laughs> so you can really prep. That was a really long answer to a very short question. No, that's great. I Because I've never heard of the input-output survey, and so that's really helpful because I just assumed that we should always be assessing in both languages, Regardless of, you know, if on the home language survey, somebody once put, oh, grandma speaks Spanish and they're at home with grandma some of the time, you know, that it was important for us to do both. What I tend to do with, let's say that the Spanish is something that the child is exposed to maybe 10%, 15, 20% of the time, something like that. I always do like a little screener, you know, where I ask them, you know, really simple questions in that other language, like, you know, what's your name? How old are you? Like, it's really simple, yes, no. And then we go to more advanced, like, what's the difference between a comb and a fork? I don't even, I've never used that one. I just made that up. But I do have something that I got from Rosemary McKibben, which is a, like a screening for second language learners. And so I've translated it myself into Spanish, but it's hers to test somebody's English. And I've done it the same kind of questions for Spanish. And I also did it for Navajo. And just to see if this, so, so many times you get the kid that will answer, you know, soy Juan, I'm Juan. And uh, well, how old are you? Eight. They'll answer in English, you know, or they give you the Spanish. But once it gets to, you know, more abstract type things, like what would you do if you saw a house on fire? And maybe they understood the question and they're answering it in English, or maybe they just can't even formulate a sentence or don't have understanding. That gives me a little bit of information about, what their fluency is in that other language. So I sometimes will ask some of those and that might be part of my, you know, qualitative assessment that I just take time and use an interpreter. And I have a form that I use for that that is helpful. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. Did you know that SpeechTherapyPD.com has weekly live and interactive webinars? We are the fastest growing CE provider. Subscribe today to get access to over 750 different courses in audio or video format. At the end, everyone, I will make sure that Dr. Faye shares her email address. That way, so if you have any questions about some of the forms she's talking about, she can, you know, you can email her for those things. Absolutely, yeah. Since we don't do handouts for the audio courses. All right. So we talked about the time that it takes and then the use of a qualified interpreter. You know, so often it really is the lunch lady or, you know, a paraeducator that is on break or not necessarily on break, but isn't busy for that moment. And that's often who ends up interpreting during IEPs as well. Scary, scary stuff. Yeah, yeah. So as far as you mentioned something that I had never thought of before is checking literacy levels. You know, maybe we did have a paraeducator that actually was really great at interpreting IEPs because she had done it for so many years that she had learned the educational jargon. But I'm sure that her literacy level and learning those educational jargon terms did play a part for her. So do you have any recommendations as far as working with qualified interpreters? 
once again, there's like, you know, the gold standard and then there's like real life, you know, right. real life is, you know, schools don't want to pay for it. They just, you know, it is law. That is law that we're supposed to give the parent the information and the child. We should test them in the languages that they're fluent in or that they use and that we should use the language that the parents are fluent in. That's, that is actually, if you're building Medicaid, you're under a different law because then we're, you're under the, the Department of Health that really requires it. And so if you're not providing qualified interpreters, you can be sued and your interpreter can be sued. And so it's, it's a huge deal. And here's what I recommend. You know, obviously, you know, the interpreter, finding an interpreter is important. Many times, though, you get the interpreter, like, right when the meeting starts. And this is somebody who is, if it's a professional company, then there's someone who's been vetted. It's someone who is literate and, you know, they speak both languages well. So that's what a professional brings to the table. I used to be a professional interpreter. I interpreted for courts and I interpreted for healthcare as well back in the day. And, you know, I need to brush up my skills. But let me tell you that what the interpreter does is they have to say exactly what is being said. And I have gone as someone who is presenting my evaluations to a meeting where the interpreter who is sitting at the table is saying things that are not being said by you, okay? And you have no way of knowing. And so you go and rattle off your scores and you say something like, the child has several phonological processes. He's gliding liquids and he's fronting dealers and he scored, you know, below the standard. And so he meets the qualification criteria as a child with speech language impairment in the area of articulation. First of all, you're straining that interpreter because they have to remember everything that you've said. If you could repeat what I just said perfectly, good on you. But what happens is that the interpreter then starts to summarize. And what I hear is, just sign on the dot. They just want to do what's best for your child. Or they just said part of what you said. And I've had to stop interpreters and say, that's not what I said. I've had to do that in meetings and it's comfortable as heck. But how do you know that your interpreter is any good? You know, I've been to meetings where there have been interpreters. He's, she's been our interpreter for five years. And then I get there and they're not interpreting to fidelity even close. So then the parents are not signing paperwork with informed consent. Yikes. You know, there have been parents that have been in special ed for a long time whose child has been in special ed and they don't even know what special ed is. You know, how does someone with a high school diploma interpret least restrictive environment or some of the terminology or, you know, crystallized intelligence, et cetera? They don't. And so my recommendation is if, if you, first of all, you know, an interpreter is important. I always try to get them half hour before the meeting <laughs> and keep them half hour after so I can kind of give them an idea. Okay, this is a meeting where we're just going to write an IEP, a plan, or this is a meeting where we're going to talk about qualification. And so here's a copy of the report. Here's the terms that we're going to use. Here are the people that are going to be in the building or in the meeting. Here are their titles. So you can kind of, you know, just orient your interpreter to what you're going to be talking about. And it's the same thing in healthcare, right? They just bring in the cart and, you know, the interpreter has to, you know, think on the spot without, you know, giving a pre-warning. By the way, you're going to tell your client, you have this patient that they have cancer. It'd be nice to know those things ahead of time. So the same thing, by the way, the parent's going to find out for the first time that their child has a cognitive impairment. The interpreter needs to know what the tone that's going to be set and what's going to be said. And then afterwards, you kind of go, how did it go? Did you get the feeling that they understood? What, you know, what are some recommendations? What can we do for the future? So you can have a pre, you know, like um, pre-meeting type of meeting and orient the interpreter and at the end have like a post-meeting. And then when you're working with an interpreter, you should always, and this is not for assessment. This is just for a meeting. Assessment is a completely different beast. But you're working in a meeting 
And you want to make sure that you talk directly to the client, to the patient's family, that you're not saying, tell her that she, that is so not okay. You want to be looking straight at the family and you want to make sure that your wording is use everyday language. Use the language that you would use when you're explaining to your family what it is that you do. You know, Juanito worked so hard during the evaluation. Yeah, he just worked really hard and I had him look at some pictures and tell me what they are. And so then I was able to hear all the sounds that he is using right now. Yeah. And some of the sounds he's doing correctly, like this sound for this word, and other times he substitutes it. Yeah, with other sounds like this. Just like that. There's no reason to be using crazy language like standard scores and you know and names of phonological processes and all that, test names and they don't know if your your interpreter is going to be saying exactly what you're saying. So if the parent isn't understanding, even if your interpreter is like a fantastic person that knows everything about special ed law, they're not there to fix your stuff. They're not there to explain what least restrictive environment is or crystallized intelligence. They're going to say exactly what you're saying. So if you really want your parents to understand, speak, you know, just like you would with your Uncle Joe. And you're going to get better interpretation especially with someone that maybe is not as you know qualified or someone that's been trained. The other thing that I recommend to everybody, and I've done this with every school district, you find somebody who's good and you train them, okay? So you have the same person, this person you were talking about, you know, has been doing it for a while and she's taught herself, God bless her. It should be up to the school district to actually train her. I've worked with interpreters who don't even know about HIPAA, okay? Because no one's told them. So then they're like, oh, man, I interpreted a meeting today. Did you know that, you know, Liz's son is autistic? I didn't know that. She's our next-door neighbor. They go home and tell their family because no one has explained to them about the construct of special education, the world of SPED. We forget that, that the lunch lady may not know about HIPAA or may not know about confidentiality. So if you have somebody that you trust, that you know has good literacy skills, and it's a, in hopefully every school district has a way of testing that, but maybe you don't because it's a small district, but somebody that has been vetted, then you, that person, you bring them flowers, bring them candy, you make sure that the school district pays them for their special gift and talent, okay, for what they're doing for you, and you invest in them and teach them about your world, Okay, and show them the vocabulary they need to know and let them use dictionaries and, you know, during the meeting and let them take notes and let them talk to you about their process. And then you train them on how to help you with assessments when you can't find a qualified SLP who's bilingual. Oh, this whole interpreting thing is like my thing right now. I'm just, it's, yeah, so you kind of caught me. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) My passion about interpreters. (laughs) No, this is fantastic because... Of course, with any assessment, we need to be really intentional, but there comes a lot more pieces to think about when it comes to bilingual and multicultural assessment. And as you were talking, I'm thinking, wow, it really does take more time to do this well, you know, making sure that we are training our interpreters during assessment and making sure that we're, you know, teaching them to have that flat affect even you know, and it's okay if the child doesn't perform well. That's okay. That just means they need our help. It you sounds know? like you've had this experience before because that's usually what happens is they try to help the child. Yes. And they don't understand. When you're doing a dynamic assessment, they really don't understand that we just want to see how they respond to things. So you do have to really, you know, they don't know. They're not SLPs. They're just there to say the words that you say in another language. 
And sometimes they want to simplify things and you wouldn't even know that they've just explained it a different way than you've explained it or that they've actually given more cues than what you would have given. So it's really, really important that you have those conversations with them. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that idea of the pre and post, you know, especially for assessments too, of this is how we're going to do things. And then, hey, how did you feel about that? This is what I noticed. How did you feel? You know, and even giving them a chance to say, oh, that was really hard for me to keep a flat affect or to not help them. Or I caught myself helping them at this point and this point and this point, which I may not have picked up on, but then they've given me that information, which of course can go into the qualitative measures of this is how much help that they needed, or this is what was given to them to complete the task. So... You know, I have students in my bilingual team that are monolingual, which is what we want. I want them to have that experience. And so we give them experience working with interpreters and actually they have to, they're like, well, what do I do during the evaluation? I'm not going to understand everything. Yes, you will. You know, you have ears, right? If you know, if you're given the GFTA three in Spanish, let's say, or in some other language, you're giving an Arctic test, a speech test, then you can actually, you can see if they're struggling. You can see what this one word, you can actually write phonetically what they're saying and then check with your interpreter afterwards. But it's surprising. We had one just recently and my students were like, that child was stuttering. Like, hmm, he was stuttering in another language. Interesting. What was it that you observed? So one of the things that I've heard some clinicians, they just leave the room. They, oh, I've worked with her before. She can give the PLS5 in Spanish, you know, on her own. No, she can't. That's wrong, illegal, immoral, (laughs) unethical, I don't know what other acronyms or adjectives I could use, but you need to stay in the room because your powers, your observational skills are important regardless of what language the child in the family is speaking. There's a lot of stuff that goes on and you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how much you can pick up. So I just sit there and I take notes. I'm just speaking in Farsi, but I'm taking notes because I can see that dad said this and what the child said was different. So even though I can't maybe transcribe the sounds because they're not found in, you know, in the phonemic inventory of the English language or Spanish language, it's a completely different sound. I know that it sounded different and I know that maybe he struggled with it or I know that he was missing some sounds. And so I can make note of that and then come back and talk to the interpreter about, you know, what is it that he said. That's just for, that's the easy part of the speech. But the language you can definitely see, you know, the father or the mother is asking a question the child is giving them one word answers or is pointing or maybe if the parent had to re-say it several times because they weren't understanding those are things that even if you don't speak that language you are a professional you know you're an expert in communication science disorders you're very well trained and you can pick up things like that that are going to be very helpful for your report absolutely absolutely thank you so much for bringing that up that is you know we do have clinical judgment Even with our monolingual kids who might do fantastic on a very structured language assessment, but we have eyes and ears that can, you know, give us other input. So thank you for bringing that up, just like we can with our bilingual multicultural kids. So thank you for giving us that confidence boost that we need, you know, to jump into some of these mini case studies. If we don't do it, there's nobody out there to do it for us. I mean, we'll need to figure this out. We have to figure it. We can't just say, I can't test this child. I don't speak their language and just leave it at that. We can't do that. The Office of Civil Rights would be all over us for that, right? Right. So we can't ignore our students. Oh, I've heard this before. Once they become more fluent in English, then I'll test them. What's going to happen in the meantime while they're learning English? (laughs) 
you know, what's going to happen? And so we have to be able to do this and figure it out. I think the time has come and gone for us to think there's some savior bilingual SLP who speaks every language in your school district. Some school districts have 70, 80 languages spoken. You're never going to find that unicorn ever, ever, ever. And there are kids that are going to need services. We need to, you know, stand up. You know, I remember working in a school district once and I was given the self-contained class. This is a long time ago. And all of them had feeding issues. Oh, man. It's like, and I'm thinking, that's just not my thing. That's just not my thing. So I'm just like, you know what? I'm just not going to work on their feeding because I don't feel comfortable with that. No, 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 no. I couldn't do that. These kids, I walked in there and I know enough. I could hear gurgling. They were coughing. They were being bird fed. I'm like, okay. There, we, we, so I sent them all to have feeding evaluations with an expert in feeding. And we worked together so we could come up with a plan. And I had to train the cafeteria workers to, you know, I had to train the aides, right, on how to feed. We had in-services and my district was very supportive. I had to level up, okay, because these kids were in my caseload and they were my responsibility. Do I like working on feeding? No, it's still not my thing. Do I like working on AAC? You know what? There's so many machines out there. It's so hard to keep up. It's so hard to learn how to program. It can be such a pain. doesn't matter. They're on our caseloads, and we have to figure it out. It's the exact same thing with our bilingual, multicultural children. We can't just pawn it off on somebody else. Let me tell you one thing. Our SLPs who are bilingual are dropping off like flies because they're being overworked. Okay, they're being overworked. These evaluations are so hard for bilingual SLPs. When you know two languages, it still takes you time to transcribe a, a, a Spanish, you know, narrative sample and to figure out what the errors are. That is, that's really hard. Okay, so we are overworking them. And some of them are just leaving the field because they're overworked. So we can't continue to do that. We have to figure out a better way. And the better way is for us to level up. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And you're right. We do. We have to level up. And I love your examples of explaining that we have to do this even if we don't want to. So I appreciate that. You talked just a little bit about qualitative measures. Can you just touch briefly? I know briefly is really hard to do. But I say briefly because this topic is really due for more than just an hour. That's really, to do it. You're doing it already. Yeah. I think that there's this mystery. There's this, I have to find a standardized assessment. And I get this asked all the time. What is a Spanish assessment that I can give? I'm like, so there aren't very many assessments out there that are made to pick up children with disabilities with communication disorders or to identify a child who does not have a communication disorder. This is that sensitivity and specificity that you probably hear about all the time. What does that mean? You know, it's how sensitive is the test for picking a child who has a communication disorder. Many times tests are, that are made out there, like some of the developmental tests that we have for like five area evaluations, like for preschool, they're not made to identify a child with a communication disorder. They assess like some communication skills and ask for colors and things like that, but they're not sensitive enough to pick a child with a communication disorder. Neither is something like the PPBT or any expressive one word. Those are not meant to pick up a child with a communication disorder. Okay, so that's number one. So what we do is we can choose activities that we know have been proven to the children with communication disorders tend to not do really good at, you know? And so you'll see that in tests all the time. Some of the tests kind of look at the same things and it's because those activities that you see on the told or on the self or on the castle, some of those tests that are kind of similar is because they've been proven to identify children with disabilities. For example, agrammaticality, 
you know, can a child hear a sentence and tell you if it's correct or incorrect? That's a skill that children that have communication disorders have more difficulty than kids that don't. So it's just one of those little pieces. Now, don't go out there and just give that because that's just, it's just a piece, right? It's just a small piece, but that's one of them. Narrative assessments in any language. Now, if you're not looking at the grammatical portion, because many times you get stuck on, oh, he's not using pronouns correctly, or he's not, and many times some of those grammatical issues have to do with a second language influence, dialect, you know, an accent. And so if we strip that away and we look at the narrative, a narrative assessment, you want a child to retell or tell you a story where there are characters where the story is moving, there's, you know, think about your story grammar elements type of thing that you, you know, you remember from grad school. There's a problem, there's a solution. And so those kinds of things, children that don't have a communication disorder, they can do that. Maybe they have articulation issues and it's difficult to understand. Maybe their grammar is not quite there yet, maybe because of a second language influence. Sometimes it's not. But if they have those elements, they can tell you a story, tell you what happened yesterday, tell you about an event that happened, a movie they saw, more of a plot, and you get that general sense of a story, then that's a really good assessment to give. You also want to find out, there's also like another one called, you know, the nonsense word repetition task, which you've seen probably in something like, there's some free ones out there, and I know that they're in leadersproject.org, there's quite a few of them that you can download for younger children and for older children. And they have it in Spanish and they also have it in English. And when I say Spanish and English, I mean the sounds because they're not words. So you say the word and the child repeats it. Children that have communication disorders have difficulty doing that, manipulating the phonemes in, in language and being able to repeat. That's just another piece of the puzzle that we can put in there. So, and then the dynamic assessments. Everybody's like, dynamic assessments is such a big word. And it's stimulability. You want to find out what they know and if they can learn a different way of doing things. You know, I had a, a child once who, you know, didn't know how to point to pictures. You know, we're like, point to the picture. They, they just didn't have that skill. In many countries, many cultures, pointing is just not something that's taught. When my kid was little, we'd sit there with books, right, when they were little, and we're leafing through books, and, oh, where's the cat, and where's the dog? And we kind of teach our children how to take tests early on. But in other countries, pointing is not a big deal, you know? It's, it's not something that they teach. And so, is this child having, I mean, can they not follow directions? Are they not getting the questions? Or they just not know how to point? So then we just do a small dynamic assessment. We teach them. And, you know, we give them the chance. And then we see if we test them at the end, did they learn? You know, how quickly did they learn? Were they able to actually retain that knowledge for other subtests and other things we did down the way? That gives you a lot of information about measuring their ability to learn and retain. Yeah. So those are the, so some of the kinds of things that would be included in a protocol. I often just take subtests, some of my favorite subtests that I tend to get a lot of information. Like, for example, the told when you have to say, I don't give this all the time, but where they say maybe it was the, not the tool five, but the four, because you can use any test if you're using it qualitatively. But, you know, tell me, what is this? And, you know, tell me what a tree is or tell me what a, what a girl is. And I'm not really keeping track and scoring that test, but, man, that gives me a lot of information, right? If they can explain what a noun is or how do how they explain what a verb is. So I use some tests to sort of help me get information, but I don't use them to score and compare to English-speaking children from North America if that makes sense. So things like that, that I might take something like the understanding paragraphs from the self, you know, some of those stories are not appropriate culturally for some, 
but you know the story about the wildfires or something for a kid that lives in the desert that might not be they might not understand it at all but it's kind of interesting to ask questions and find out how, how they respond so something like the self for spanish which by the way it's another one that has poor sensitivity and specificity i may use some subtests from that i probably don't do not use the expressive vocabulary portion of that i will probably not use the grammar but i might use some of the other subtests to just to get information i don't have to give the whole thing either because i'm not working on getting baseline or ceiling so you're just using those to do dynamic assessments and to get information about the way that they communicate Awesome. Thank you so much. You've given us so much information already. What are two resources you can share with us to help us level up? So I mentioned, you know, this already before, but you know, my favorite, and again, Dr. Kate Crowley just pays me absolutely no money. I'm hoping that she sends me some free stuff soon. She kind of promised she would and she hasn't. So to talk to her about that. But I really do love the leadersproject.org website, and that's from Columbia University. Leaders Project, and everything is free. I love free stuff. You know, send me free stuff. I love free stuff. So leadersproject.org has these modules that are free on how to conduct preschool evaluations. I mean, they're there, and you can get Asha CEUs for free. Who doesn't like free? They also have some sample reports, how to write these reports. Yeah, leadersproject.org, fantastic. They also have the famous SLAM pictures. I don't even know what it stands for. You should probably know that. But they're just a series of pictures. You can use them so that the child can either tell a story sequentially or retell. Those are really good. And they're shorter than using like a wordless picture book. Something like the Frog series, those frog books from Mercer Mayer that are wordless. They're fantastic. And if you use the SALT software to be able to analyze your sample, then those are the ones you want to use. But sometimes those are long and I don't have a lot of time. So I like to use the SLAM, so the cubed type of stories. There's just a lot out there. But any picture book would be nice. But the leadersproject.org has several of them. They have like a picture of three crayons and one of the crayon actually, you know, scribbled on the wall and it's that color, but he's actually blaming another crayon. So there's this, you can have this discussion. So you don't have to necessarily do the story, but you can actually find out about their reasoning. There are some pictures that might not be appropriate for, like, I think there's a subway picture. There are no subways in Arizona. So that's, you know, I call it an elevator. But so you have to judge which is appropriate for your population. But they have actually, some of them have been digitized. So if you're doing them online, you can, what is that called? They're live, like you can click on it and you can move the pictures around. But they're free. Anyway, all those pictures are free downloads and they actually have questions that you can ask. And they also have a critical questions sheet of things that you need to know in your interview, such as asking about the parents' you know, educational level and about the amount of English exposure they have and, and other language exposure. That's all free. So go out there and just have a good time with that website. The other one that we fail to forget sometimes that we have is the ASHA practice portal. Oh my gosh, you know, you're paying all these dues, $225 plus whatever, $45 for your sig and plus whatever. And people complain, what is ASHA doing for me? Well, they've got this amazing practice portal that you don't even have to put in your membership account to access it. But if you go there, you can actually get like a phonemic inventories for different languages, which is great to know. And some other, you know, cultural type of information. You also get, you know, how to do a bilingual evaluation, you know, what are the best practices, links to reading, links to resources. And if you belong to something like SIG 14, which is the Cultural Linguistic Diversity SIG, which, by the way, I have to say I'm on the coordinating committee, so this is like a shameless plug, but I get, you know, I'm volunteer, so... 
we have a library of all kinds of resources for you that is part of being a SIG 14 member and access to the perspectives, which actually have tutorials. And there are some that are coming up within the next year on how to do these evaluations. So this is like going a little bit deeper in your knowledge, but do go to the practice portal. I think it's under professional issues, bilingual service delivery. I think that's where you can, I can just Google ASHA bilingual services or bilingual delivery, and it'll take me straight to the practice portal. So those are really good things. And then, you know, you can go to ASHA and they actually have some videos in addition on how to do dynamic assessments and some other things on there that are free as well. And then there are also some that, you know, you pay for. I want to tell you before I forget that even though I'm a bilingual speech language pathologist now, I wasn't a bilingual speech pathologist not very long ago. Okay. So I was a speech pathologist who spoke Spanish and English. There's a big difference. I went to grad school and got my master's just like all of you did in English. Okay. So analyzing a language sample in another language is not something I was trained to do. Knowing what the processes are in a different language was not something I was trained to do. I had the same coursework you did, probably less than you did, because back in my day, nobody, when I went to grad school way back in the you know old days, nobody even cared that I was bilingual. Like it wasn't even an asset. Like they, no one even talked about it. And so I had to go back to school, you know, I did go back to school, but I actually had to read up journal articles and take courses like this and like others, the speech therapy PD puts on and, you know, really dive in so that I could serve my clients. I was speaking Spanish and English, you know, from a, you know, from a very young age. Right. But then I ended up getting married to somebody who worked in the Navajo reservation and I didn't speak Navajo. And I had to do these evaluations and I had to figure it out. And there was no phonemic inventory that I knew of. And I didn't have, I didn't know what dynamic assessments or anything like that. So I had to roll up my sleeves and I like, and just admit, I don't know what I'm doing. I better figure it out quickly because I would go to these in-services sometimes that said that we're talking about native, you know, children and native languages. And they knew less than I did. And that was a scary, scary thing. So I had to like, again, using level up. And so all of us do. And, and there's lots of stuff out there and lots of help. And the field is getting so much better. And graduate schools are actually teaching about cultural linguistic diversity and giving certificates and coursework. And you need to embrace that and know that you can do it, you know, just like I had to do it. And I'm still working on it. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing about the SIG group, because I have to admit, I never thought of joining SIG 14, the bilingual multicultural, because I am not that. But knowing that there is a lot of resources, I will for sure be joining this next year. You know, it's not just for people who, like you said, I have to start thinking of myself as, yes, I practice bilingual multicultural practice because that's the world we live in, right? You know, what's really fun about the SIG that you talk about girl fanning, right? It's really fun about the SIG is like, I'll ask a question and then, you know, someone who I've seen their research actually answering this question. You know, it's like, what? You know, and so they take you straight to the source. It's very common in conversations that we'll get somebody that just gets in there and answers, and it's someone that wrote the test, someone who's doing research in it. And it feels very small that way that they're able to respond. The people that are, are in the coordinating committee are all very published, and they're doing this as they're just volunteering their time. And so they're very good about answering questions that people have. And a lot of people that belong to SIG 14, which is cultural linguistic diversity, SIG, they're not bilingual. 
you know, they're the 96, 94%, whatever female, you know, white women who are called to do this kind of thing. And so, yeah. And it's the same thing for all the other SIGs and, and people that belong to it tend to be a lot of the researchers as well as just the practitioners. So it's a nice symbiotic relationship where they find out what are people wanting to know? What do we need research in? Plus, you know, then we have access to someone explaining to us what the research means and what's the latest and greatest. Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from speechtherapypd.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. Thank you so much for sharing that for us because that is such a huge resource. Just before we popped on the call, I was talking to Yumi, our programming content director, about the SIG groups and how some of them are so beneficial because of what you said. The researchers are there responding to questions and how helpful that is. All right, we kind of jumped off into a tangent just a tiny bit, but I want to come back to what is one actionable strategy that we have to help us be better tomorrow? I can't, and I think I mentioned this at the very beginning, but I can't emphasize enough getting that case history from the families. There's a lot to be learned about their immigration story. And, you know, sometimes we have to be really careful with that, especially there's just a lot of lack of trust of what we're going to do with that information in this day and age where they're going to turn me in. Or, but it's important to find out how the dynamics of the family, you know, who's at home, who's speaking what, you know, the age of the language acquisition of the, of the child and how often it's, it's spoken. And I always ask the parents, you know, what do you foresee for your child linguistically? Because sometimes the parents uh, come from a mindset of, you know, when I got here, I was punished for speaking my language and, you know, kids made fun of me. And so I, therefore, I don't want my child to go through the same thing. And there's a lot of myths about bilingualism that are out there. And so it's important for us to kind of get through that and get to the actually what the parent would like. Would you like your child to be able to speak to their grandparent? And sometimes, you know, there are few parents that will say, no, we're going to cut off, you know, you know, very few parents will say that. It's like, I would love for them to be able to speak. Okay, so it sounds to me like you want to raise your child bilingually. Would you like more information about that? You know, and they'll say, but what's not going to affect the way that they speak or the way that they understand? No, it's not. Your child has Down syndrome and his language is going to be delayed in any language that he speaks, but he she should be able to tell his grandparents that he loves them and to, and to be able to have conversation with them at their level of cognition. Just because your child has autism, has Down syndrome, has CP, has whatever, doesn't mean that they shouldn't be bilingual. And so once we get past all that and we get to the parent, we ask them, what is it that you foresee them doing? Then we can support the child's bilingualism if that's what the parents want. I've had parents that say, I don't want my child to speak Tagalog. That's the old language from the old country. We're in the United States. I know I have a thick accent and that's fine. I know that sometimes I, I start speaking in my language, but I don't want my child to speak it. And we just have to, okay, that's where you're at. We have to accept that, but we have to know. So if you're doing an evaluation and you're involved in one, you know, even if it's someone that's like a, you have a SLP who's bilingual, help her out, help him out and get some of this um, information and history about the families and the dialects they use. Just because a family is from Mexico doesn't mean that they speak the standard Mexican dialect of Spanish. They could speak something that is might be a mix with an indigenous language. So we need to know where they're coming from you know, and what dialect they speak so we can pass that information on to the interpreter or so we can, it can inform how we're going to assess and in our practice if they qualify 
So yeah, that, that ethnographic interviewing is huge. Awesome. Thank you. If anyone has any questions, we have just a few more moments here. But if you have any other questions for Dr. Faye, please pop them into the chat or the Q&A box. And thank you for sharing those resources like Leaders Project that will help us come up with the questions for that ethnographic assessment or case history form. Also, if you put in Alberta questionnaire in your box, you will get a link to it. There's nothing else that's called that. It's from Canada. I was also just made aware of another questionnaire that people are using that I didn't know that's also free and I need to look it up, but I'm happy to share those names with you. The Alberta questionnaire, you it's like it has a scoring thing. Please don't score it. It's not normed, uh, you know, it's, if it's normed on anything, it'll be Canadian. So it's like, but it gives you some nice questions that you can ask if you don't know where to start. There is a question from Kayla C. She asks, do you have any suggestions for resources and or CEUs on Spanish articulation development? Yeah, there's some nice tutorials out there and some of the journals as well. I know that Dr. Fabiano Smith and others have done a really good job. One of the ones that's really accessible to everybody is the Bilinguistics from Texas. It's a private speech therapy company, but they have a lot of materials there that are free and some that are for pay, but they have like a nice, I think one of the free things that they give is like this Venn diagram with all the Spanish sounds and then, you know, then the English sounds and the ones that they share in the middle. So they have some nice graphics like that. I know the Portland State has a really good website as well where, you know, they have some things on the articulation, the Spanish articulation. So many times there are many CEU groups that will put up, you know, information about maybe that's something we should do, right? Maybe that's something that, that we can do for speech therapy PD on phonology in Spanish. But there's quite a bit out there, not enough. But I would say if you want something really quick, Bilinguistic does have some CE offerings and they also have some some stuff but uh, check your journal articles I think we do get them as part of our I know people can't even find them they're in the ASHA wire people get really confused about finding articles out there but I'm happy to share with you as well I'll put together a little I guess cheat sheet for some of my favorite things on phonology and I know the bilinguistic one of the things they do have is they have phonological processes in Spanish like what they're called and what the most common ones are so that might be something you want to look into Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Are you familiar with this assessment tool called the Cultural Language Interpretation Matrix, the CLIM? Yes. All right. I can tell by your face you're not super excited about that one. My previous school district required us to utilize that to determine if kids were eligible or not. It's not made for that. So that's the huge issue. And, and I know that uh, and there are a lot of psychological, actually, there's some articles that have looked at it from the psychologist's point of view. It's not created for determining language difference versus disorder. That's the biggie right there. Okay. So you can give it, and but what does it tell you? And who is it normed on, right? So I would say any of these kinds of tests, they might give you information, but I don't, you shouldn't use any of them solely. You shouldn't use the cell four, the BESA, the, the castle, you shouldn't use any of those as their sole criteria for identifying, and you shouldn't score any of it. And if anybody tells you that you have to score, then you need to remember that you put on your SLP boots on, and you know what the right answer is, and you need to advocate for our children and for our profession. And so that's where you need to kind of level up and take those courses so that you have the right information to be able to make an argument as to why you cannot use standardized assessments to make a difference or disorder type of decision with 
are culturally linguistic diverse children. That's not, not the way to go. You're going to over-identify and your caseloads are going to be huge. Yeah. Okay. And then you're going to be teaching English rather than working on the communication disorder. We are not ESL teachers. We're not ELL teachers. We're speech language pathologists that work with disorders. We're not here to teach English. We're here to work on communication disorders. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. And thank you for the synopsis on the CLIM. I appreciate that. You know, it's like you said, it's something that is very common in the school districts is, okay, we know standardized tests. But that is not appropriate for our bilingual students. It's not. And just think if you were to go to Japan tomorrow and move there, what if they gave you a standardized test in Japanese to right. determine if you have a disability? You're going to fail. Right. And then you're going to be in a self-contained class. Right. You have to be really careful. Yeah. yeah. My experience with it wasn't necessarily the students that I was only doing reassessments. I wasn't doing any brand new assessments, but I rely heavily on dynamic assessment. Right. So So when you're giving those sort of tests, you know that little voice in the back of your head, that's your training. That's your, you're a professional. So trust that you're, it's not a gut. It's a, it's an informed gut is what we have. We're not just Mm -hmm. making decisions just, you know, on a whim. We're actually informed by our education. Do you have any suggestions for maybe talking with team members about when you know a student is not disordered, it's a difference, and they seem to be pushing services really hardcore during those IEP meetings, even family too, they get the family really riled up about it. What suggestions do you have as far as just putting on our SLP boots to quote you? Yeah, I mean, I always go ready with the idea law and what it says. And it is actually illegal for us to identify a child with a disability if they're not assessed in their um, language and if their duality, their their bilingualism isn't taken into account. We cannot place a child as a, as a child with a disability when we are not taking into account their, their bilingualism. And so I always just use, you know, the law. And it's very, very clear in the IDEA law, you know. And so parents will want as much services as they can get. Well, who wouldn't? All of us here who are parents, we want what's best for our children. They don't understand that we're bound by law and by ethics. And it is actually illegal for us to take federal funds, you know, to provide services for a child that's been mis- misdiagnosed. And the courts will not be on our side. Okay? If we are taken, you know, to court, they will not be on our side if we over-identify. We've known that. We know that because it's been proven in the past. So, you know, you have to identify, you have to say, I'm here to work with children with disabilities. Your child is learning English. And so the things that we're hearing are pretty natural. And he will, you know, he will learn. And the child might have a learning disability. Who knows? But he might not have a language disorder. So they're not necessarily always tied. And so it's a matter of telling the parents he is learning to speak his, you know, second language. And he will do that because it appears that he is moving right along. He doesn't have a disorder. And I'm here to just serve kids with disorders, but he might be able to benefit from services from the English language learning department where they will work on teaching and vocabulary and those kinds of things. But I work with children with disabilities. And so it's explaining our role and we have to re-educate teachers and re-educate the professionals around us that this is what our role is. It's up to us. It takes time, but we have to be consistent, right? And we can change. I have changed the way that I explain things and I've changed the way that I talk to parents. And it's just not getting into a fight about, you know, this is what I do and this is what you do and I'm not going to. It's about forming relationships and being culturally responsive. 
in our communication with families and making sure they understand that we're here to help children, but your child doesn't need our help. He's actually learning uh, to speak English, which is a very natural. So some of the things that he's doing when he speaks, some of the grammatical differences are just very common for a child who's learning to speak English. And we have many children do the same. And, and isn't it great that we found out today that he doesn't have a disorder? He doesn't say his TH sounds. We don't, the TH doesn't even, it's not even found in the Spanish language. And so that's called an accent. And your accent is actually your badge that you're bilingual. It means that you speak multiple languages and you should it's it's a wonderful thing. It's not a disorder. Thank you for that example of the language too of, you know, this is your badge. This is a this is your superpower, you know. So I love that of coming at it very positively. That is super helpful. We have just a few minutes left. If you have any questions, please pop them into the chat. Thank you Sarah for sharing that there is an assessment and intervention for Spanish to and it's a great one. I took that one. I think I spoke for this is the same one, but it's, it's an excellent course. So do take advantage of that. Yes. And I cannot recommend Dr. Faye's courses that are on speechtherapypd.com. She does such a fabulous job. And so Dr. Namazi also has, I think she was in that same conference and it was yeah. really great too. I attended that and I found her information so valuable. She's fantastic. Yes. She's also entertaining. So yes, <laughs> she is. She is. So definitely take advantage of those courses. All right. Well, Dr. Faye, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. I love it when you get on your soapbox and you let us know about interpreters and you keep it real. You know, thank you for sharing with us just how much time it's all going to take. It takes time to do the training. It takes time to build those relationships with families. It takes time to do all of the pre-work and to do all of the analysis after. But the important part is that it, it does, does take time, but not to rush, you know, I mean, you want to make sure that you absorb the information, you feel confident, you know, don't expect to have it all figured out by tomorrow. It doesn't work like that. You have to really scope it out. If you're on the right road, the information that you will acquire will just kind of build on itself and you'll start to feel more and more confident. Absolutely. Heather says, I've learned so much today. Thank you. I could listen to Dr. Faye Murray speak all day. <laughs> I am in the same boat. I selfishly asked her to be on the podcast, not because she's so amazing with her content, but because she, I just love the way that she presents it. It's very attainable for those of us who are just starting out. And like you said, you know, start just doing one thing, which is why I asked the, what is one strategy we can start doing tomorrow? So I am definitely going to beef up my case history form. So thank you for that. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for helping us all level up and everyone else. You can hopefully join us next Tuesday, same time to level up some more. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.